This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Hi everyone, I'm Jane Tara and I'm chatting to authors and experts about their self-help, wellness and personal development books. If you're looking for ways to be happy, be well and be inspired, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Better Reading B. Belinda Alexandra is well known for her best-selling historical novels such as The French Agent, The Mystery Woman and White Gardenia. She's also no stranger to non-fiction. The Divine Feline explores the relationship between women and cats throughout history. Now she's written Emboldened, which is a powerful combination of memoir and historical non-fiction that showcases her immeasurable talent as a storyteller. Belinda is here today to talk to me about passion, about connection, about purpose, and about the incredible women in Emboldened who inspired her story. Belinda Alexandra, welcome to Better Eating B. Hi, Jane. <laughs> it's great to be here. It's so great to have... Do you know you are the first author who I have spoken to in the podcast room because normally I do it on Zoom. So it's actually nice to have someone face-to-face, but for that person to be you. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I'm pleased. So congratulations on Emboldened. It is something a little different for you. Of course, your historical novels are hugely popular with our readers and I, you know, I love Golden Earrings and White Gardenia and you've weaved a lot of your passions into those novels. But now there are similar themes that you've weaved into this uh, memoir slash non-fiction book that sort of incorporates all of these wonderful women from history, including your mother. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Look, that's really amazing. And it does feel like a magical book, even to me. And no one could be more surprised than I am at how it actually turned out, because I actually found it enormously difficult to write. Yes. You know, as as you mentioned, many of the listeners will know me from my historical fiction books. Um, but whenever I was out on the publicity circuit, you know, I was always asked about the stories behind the stories. Mm. But I thought nonfiction was the realm of biographers and, you know, professional journalists. I didn't really know how to approach it myself. And actually, when I wrote this book, because um, I am including the personal stories of my mum's story and my grandmother's story, um, I actually found it really difficult. Mm. And it took me several attempts. But once I hit the voice, and once I knew what I wanted to write about, it was like I got all this extra help, as if all the people that I've written about were breathing their life into the pages. And I think that's why they jump off the pages as real, fully formed people. I think it's almost like it's a culmination of your past work as well, because, uh, you know, in Emboldened, you bring four women in who inspired you at a difficult time in your life. And, you know, a couple of these women, your your mother and also the flamenco dancer. Carmen uh, Amaya. Yes. How do I say her name? So Carmen Amaya. Carmen Amaya. So you actually, you know, you weaved the research 
into those lives and those stories into golden earrings and white gardenia in the past. So it's almost like you've sort of returned to um, the background research that you've done to tell the true life story of these women. So let's just start at the beginning of it. And and while I'm raving about your book as well, I'd go as far as saying that it does lean into self-help. Mm-hmm as well. So for anyone who's listening, it really is the basis of the story is that you had hit rock bottom in your life. Mm -hmm. Something really quite traumatic had happened to you, which we don't need to go into here because, um, because it's not really what the story is about. It's what, where the story started Mm -hmm. for you. And from that, you had to learn how to rebuild your life. So you decided to, um, you're obviously an optimistic person. Right. <laughs> I, I'm like a seesaw person. <laughs> <laughs> but there, I think there needs to be a kind of glass half full type yes. of mentality to look and go, okay, so how, how do I do that? How do I structure moving forward in my life mm. when you're starting again in such a difficult way? And by doing that, you actually... Well, you, firstly, you looked at your mother yep. and your family history, your ancestral history uh, and what they'd been through and how resilient those women were and then looked for some other inspiring women in history and you were able to share with us, you know, qualities like connection, purpose, passion, which all add up to living an emboldened life, to living a bold life. So can you describe what what is emboldened to you? Okay. Well, to be emboldened, I think it's a kind of forward energy and it it encompasses a kind of courage Mm. that sometimes we have to bring that up in ourselves when we're faced with a circumstance where we think, I don't know how I can face this Mm. or I don't know what to do. And that was certainly my um, situation. Like, how do I rebuild my life from rock bottom? Like, where do I even start? And then I realised I'd actually been writing about people who had done that. And I think almost our role as a storyteller is to encourage people. And so I had to encourage myself first, but then in telling the story of these women and then also my own recovery in life, I'm just getting so much wonderful feedback from people that they actually feel encouraged. And I think that's why we really want to listen to each other's stories. We want to know that, yes, I can get up, but if we don't have any role models for that, then we we struggle a bit. But we have role models all around us and what I've done is I've just brought some fantastic ones to, who really just demonstrated those qualities of being an emboldened person. I think struggle is part of our human existence. We might put on pretty faces and hide it all but the truth is everybody is struggling with something and you only have to talk to people at some level and they may look like they've been living the most perfect life but when you talk to them you really see it's not a perfect Instagram picture. Everybody's struggling with something and I think the way that we encourage each other is to tell those stories to say look these other people have struggled and they overcame it and I've struggled and I've also overcome it and I think that gives us tremendous hope. Mm. You write about your mother's journey. She was Russian, born in the Chinese city of Harbin and then um, raised in Shanghai. I know something about that 
wonderful history. Uh, I think I've told you before that mm. I had a, a friend, Zika, who um, the same, and it's a, a, just a fascinating period of time in Shanghai and also in Harbin. Do you feel your mother was obviously a really great storyteller herself? Did you appreciate her resilience and the qualities that you have since sort of discovered and written about in Emboldened that were able to get you through your own difficult time. Did you grow up sort of understanding the adversity that she'd faced? I think perhaps not as fully as I did as an adult, but I think to some degree I did. I did see that my mother was very different from um, the other mothers around me. I was brought up in a very safe part of um, Sydney and most of the other uh, people around us were, if they were migrants at all, they were from Britain and they still referred to, you know, England as as home, mm. where my mother had been a refugee who'd lost everything and basically just one of the few possessions she had was this photograph album of people that I had never met. My grandparents, you know, great um, aunt and uncle, and these people had been executed or died in air raids or had died in, in wars and things. And it was just an exotic book to look at. But I knew that my mother had travelled some deeper journey. And also the fact that she spoke five languages I thought was quite magical mm. because I do remember as a child going to the Chinese markets and that my mother could read all the signs in Mandarin and she could converse with the sellers as well. And I just thought, I don't think my friend's mothers can do this. <laughs> so I always saw her as magical, but I knew from her and also from her friends, she never excluded me from getting together with her friends, with her other Russian and Polish and Ukrainian friends. And all of them had had difficulties. All of them had left entire lives behind. Uh, they'd witnessed starvation. They'd witnessed incredible uncertainty. So I would even go to the point to say I was quite a resilient child, mm. but perhaps at a deeper level, I learned to to see it at another layer as an adult. Mm. I think you write about your mother in a way that she is the most colourful character. You know, and this is the beauty of Emboldened is that you have her up there in a lineup of some very impressive women in history. And she is one also. Yeah. You know, isn't that incredible that we can have these characters in our own family and they're weaved into the stories that um, make up us yeah. as well. And I think that's what I really love about biographies. Like we do talk about self-help or motivational books, but the books that really help me and motivate me are biographies mm. because for me, I really see the person in all their complexities and all their baggage and that these are not perfect cookie cutter heroes and, and heroines, that these are actually real people. And I think that's probably the thing that really encourages us that, you know, if we look at someone and they go, oh, well, they're just so amazing. I could never be that amazing. But what I really see in biographies is that 
a lot of the time it's the decisions people mm-hmm. are making, the kind of decisions that they're making and the kind of ways that they're thinking. And when we read a lot of self-help books, we're always told that the way that you think about things is very important and the decisions that you make at each point about who you're going to be and how you're going to show up each day. But when we read it in a you know, just a straightforward self-help book. It's often just very, I don't know, it's a kind of little bit sanitized and it's a little bit simplified perhaps. Mm. But when you see it brought out in someone's real life and you see that this person is a human with all their doubts and um, all their struggles as well, but you see that they do make these decisions and they decide to think a certain way, I just find that very inspiring. Mm. I think if we're writing the story of your life, (laughs) one of the key decisions that you made and you write about it in the book is uh, to take up flamenco dancing. Yeah. And I love that part of the book. So that is under the heading of passion. And I know that you have a great passion for flamenco, but I didn't understand um, the history of flamenco. I didn't, it was fascinating to read about it in your book and to read about when you were in Spain with your parents, taking them to see, well, you'd asked, can we go to a flamenco show? Yeah, I thought show? we were going you to a yeah. cabaret yeah. style <laughs> dance <laughs> to, for tourists. And that's yeah. right. So you ended up at this little bistro, you know, with um, sort of older men and women and the way that you describe that. And it was years before you actually started dancing yourself yeah. and yet a seed was planted. Can you talk to me a bit about flamenco? And, and how important that was at this period in your life when you were rebuilding. Yeah, look, the thing about flamenco is it comes out, uh, it comes actually from a group of people. It's got Jewish influences. It's got Romani, which was formerly referred to as Gypsy, mm-hmm. but it's now Romani, and also Arabic influences. And it was all sort of uh, came out of persecution when people were sort of driven from their homes and had to go to caves. And all those um, influences blended into this music style first and then um, dance form and song form um, called flamenco. And so it really is the song and the dance of the survivors. It's great. It's so great. And I love how you write about that in there. I I devoured that part of the book and went back and read it again because I found it so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, dance is... um, it's something that I've loved all my life and I'm not going to even pretend I'm an amazing dancer, but I've just loved it and I love learning it. For me, it's the, if, even when I was doing, you know, researching my books, if there's a national dance to learn, I'll kind of go and learn it because for me, it says something about the culture. Uh, for instance, you know, when I was writing uh, Wild Lavender, I learned the Charleston because I thought everybody was you know, dancing the Charleston. Mm. So I need to learn that and the tango and so on. Uh, For me, dance really embodies a a spirit of something. And flamenco is deeply passionate, but it's also very strong. It's like, you've done these things to me, you've tried to destroy me, but you can't because I have this pride in myself and this energy in myself and you can't destroy me. I'll overcome. It's about your spirit. It's about, it's a very deep Mm. spirit. And in flamenco, they talk about duende, which is sometimes uh, translated as the little devil. Although some people try to, you know, clean that up a bit, make it the little angel. Yeah. 
but it's actually a spirit where you're so in the zone and you're so in the the moment of the dance that you connect with something bigger than yourself. And when you connect with something bigger than yourself, it affects the people around you. And in Carmen Amaya's case, her dancing was so spectacular, so full of duende. She was so able to channel um, this spirit that her audience would end up tearing their clothes and beating their chests and <laughs> the fire brigade would have to be called to hose everybody How down. Amazing. Yeah. And I sort of took that is I it's more than passion. It's a bit more than passion. But I think passion in a way is many is in many ways like that. Um, there's a difference between passion and a obsession. Yes. And you can tell that when you're around somebody who's obsessed by something, they drain you. So if you're stuck in an elevator talking to someone about conspiracy theories, it's amazing how quickly you can become completely drained. But passion, someone's passion has the opposite effect Mm. on you. It really energises you. And you so, do clarify that in this yeah. book, you know, that it's not, we're not talking about passion that lust yes. or, you know, it's a life force. Yeah, it is a life yeah. force. It's the, the thing that makes you jump out of bed rather than sort of mm. slide out of bed and crawl to the door on yeah. your hands and knees <laughs> waiting for a shot of caffeine. Yeah. It really is. And I found in my own life, when I am deeply involved in my passions and passionate about something or just passionate about life, mm. it gives you this kind of energy that I think, yeah, it just really embodies everything you do. It's probably a great part of being emboldened to have that courage, to have that passion, because sometimes it makes you override the things that hold you back, mm. the fear or the sheer exhaustion of life. It, it gives you this kind of energy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you started dancing at a time in your life where you were rebuilding, you were looking at, well, certainly your family history and you saw a lot of resilience um, within the family. But you made the choice also to step outside your comfort zone and do something that you'd witnessed years before in Spain. Yeah. You know, and also that you wanted to get your body moving. Yeah. You know, what was the impact of that over the course of the coming months? Well, I think um, I had the most amazing teachers. I was taught by an amazing woman who was already in her 70s, but that 
she was a master, a master of her dance. And the thing about flamenco as well is it's not it's not a dance form like ballet that really worships youth in a way. It's actually a dance form that um, really venerates uh, experience. I didn't know that until I read the book. Yeah. And I love how you write about that. Yeah. yeah. So the experience of the dancer and or the singer or the musician counts for a lot, their life experience. So it was with her and her husband, and I just believe in the magic power of three mm. because uh, one was playing the guitar, Carmen was, um, t- you know, clapping and teaching me the dance, and I was dancing. And it was actually extremely powerful. I would say we were conjuring up some incredible magic because I felt strength. I had to face and overcome incredible things, and I just felt that that threesome, us together, and the power of dance just really gave me courage. Mm. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we think of dance as something pretty or mm. just some some sort of entertainment. But dance, if you look at different cultures, dance is often used to get people into trances to get mm. to a, another level. And the thing about flamenco is it's a lot about the rhythm and it's your feet that keep the rhythm. You know, it's interesting. I was reading recently about trauma and one of the things that happens in trauma is that your brain becomes um, dysregulated. Mm. And one of the ways to get yourself dysreg- you know, back into regulation is to stamp from left to right on your feet to get your brain, you know, basically back in equilibrium. When I think about flamenco and all those complicated, you know, rhythms that you have to learn... I think it just empowers your brain, like mm. it just electrifies your brain because not only are you sort of regulating your brain and grounded, but you're actually going to higher levels as as well. Mm. Um, so it is an incredible um, form of dance. Yeah, that, it was. That I was actually going to ask you about um, trauma because you are open about that. You write that um, you have complex traumatic post-traumatic stress or oh, had, I did. had I did, after. Yeah. And I know that there have been various modalities that you've explored to overcome that. But my question was going to be if you feel like, you know, the dance actually really helped move that from the body. Yes, because it is uh, trauma. I mean, we used to think of it as a psychological uh, phenomenon, but it's actually in our nervous system. Mm. And that's only a really sort of recent thing that we've started to recognise that that's the reason why talk therapy can actually make it worse because it actually puts it back in a loop into the nervous system. And once I understood that this really wasn't part of me, it was just my nervous system had quite naturally relaxed, you know, reacted to a highly traumatic experience and now it was dysregulated, I actually saw, well, really, all I have to do is get back into being, you know, regulated in, mm. in my brain. And dance was certainly good for that, but also it's joy. Yes. And I think joy is incredibly powerful. And sometimes, you know, we think that we're so broken that that's it for us. But it's actually, and I and I really do try to express this in Embolden, it's actually the overcoming. Mm-hmm. It's actually honouring the struggle and it's actually just stepping over what 
whatever it is that's broken you, whatever has been your challenge, you'll actually get to joy. Mm. It's not going to be a sad little quiet life on the end of it. In in overcoming incredible obstacles, you'll find this incredible strength and you'll find this incredible passion for life and a whole new perspective mm. on everything. Mm. Uh, you write that you um, meditate as well with Dr. Joe Dispenza, and you know that I med- use his meditations yeah. as well, and that's quite a different style of meditation as well, not um, sort of you mentioned going on a loop with things. So mentally you can go on a loop if you're sitting there doing mindfulness meditation, but he kind of really takes you out of that and um, you feel heightened emotions with it and everything. So, you know, obviously you did a lot of work in all areas of your life. Talk to me a little bit about purpose and how at what point in your journey, your healing journey, you started to look at purpose? Yeah, see, that was um, that was probably one of the biggest losses that I had because I had a tremendous sense of purpose in my life and things that I wanted to do. And I had a tremendous sense that I was here for a reason, that I had things to do, especially about relating history through my writing, that we can learn from that, learn from the past, but also a great passion for animals Mm. and being active for animals. And I felt that I'd been set back light years. And I thought, why was I so set back in my purpose? But then when I read the story of Virginia Hall, Um, This amazing woman who wanted to, I mean, she was born in 1906 and she wanted to be a diplomat from a very young age because she wanted to affect world peace. But she was constantly thwarted in her goal, Um, even to the point she actually loses a leg. leg, So it becomes impossible (laughs) for her to be, you know, a diplomat. But she ends up using all the experience that she's had to have a greater effect and she becomes an intelligence officer and really affects the course of the war and then later she's part of the CIA, no doubt keeping us all safe with her intelligence work. And so, uh, you know, I lost my way. I lost my sense of purpose. But in reading her story, I actually saw, no, life wasn't breaking me. Life was just preparing me. It was making me stronger. It was making me more focused for my purpose. So when I talk about purpose, it's not really a very fashionable word Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going through a stage where we're a little bit too self-centered Um, We think our purpose is just to eat, drink and be merry. Or to be famous on Instagram. Or to be famous on Instagram. (laughs) But purpose is actually more than that. It's more than just having a goal. It's really when your talents and your passions collide, but it often is in the service of life, Mm. of others as well. So I think that I've, you know, in overcoming the things that I have, not only have I found my purpose again, but I think I've got all the experience to push it further. Mm. We sometimes feel that perhaps our purpose is even larger than than it could be. I was speaking to a Buddhist friend of mine just recently and I was talking to him about my rescue dog, Joey. And he said, that might be all it is. That might be your full purpose of of being here in this life to have been kind to this particular animal. 
you know, and I've yeah. sat with that for a couple of weeks and obviously that's on the back of um, reading Emboldened as well and the idea of purpose because I think it's really important to think about what purpose is. Yes. And, and not overstate it maybe, like just to say, you know, how can I give back? How can I be yeah. of service yeah. as well? Because right. surely that ties in together. Yeah, you don't have to go to World War II France and fight the Gestapo. <laughs> <laughs> your, your Virginia just had a very, Although very... it makes a great story. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Think... And, of course, you researched her for the French agent yes, as well. So, that's right. Yeah. Look, I think that's true. The thing is to probably just always see ourselves as developing and having a role to play. And we may not know what that role is. It may just show up. But I think being kind is is a good practice to start with. Mm. Um, and, you know, anything that contributes to the larger whole is a good practice to start with. And, you know, what she said about your rescue dog, Joey, I think is very true as well. Sometimes I just feel overwhelmed by all the animals I can't save. And then I think, well, start with this one. Yes. And start with this next one mm. and go one at a time because you're making all the difference to that, to that one. one animal. Mm. And the other thing is I never know who's watching. And I've been surprised when people have come up to me and they've said, because of you, I decided to become a vegan or because of you, I decided to, you know, get a, adopt a rescue animal. And I think, gosh, that was, I wasn't necessarily going out to get converts mm. or anything like that. It was simply because I was doing it. People were thinking, well, that fits in with my own conscious level. Because I know with me for a long time, there was a sense that, there was an inconsistency that I loved animals, but I wasn't a vegan mm. at that stage. Mm. And I just felt this is not consistent. Mm. And then when I was consistent, it brings you a level of peace. Mm. And so I think people feel that in themselves anyway. They feel, yeah, I say that I love animals, but really I'm contributing to their suffering. Mm. But then they see someone that's living that consistent life and they think, yeah, yeah it's not so difficult. And I think yeah. you do show, not tell yeah. which I think is the way to reach people now. People don't want to be lectured yeah. or told what to do, but if they admire you and the way that you live your life, that rubs off. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and I think, look, I know that I've been influenced by that in other people as well. When I see that, you know, they'll talk about something and that they're living something consistently, that sort of inspires me mm. as well and saying, well, yeah, that's that's attractive to me and I can actually see if that person's doing it, then I can probably do it. Yeah. And do well. you feel that's living an emboldened life? I think so. Yeah. I think in the end that encompasses everything because an emboldened life is not just for yourself, but I think it's a it's you will naturally contribute mm. to the life around you with your energy, um, with what your intention is, how you show up. You know, since I've gone through everything that I've gone through, I think I'm much more intentional. So even when I'm walking from the car park to an event, I'm often asking myself, how am I going to show up? Mm. Like, what? how am I going to be? Because I have so much more through meditation and through the dance and everything, so much more awareness that how I show up matters. Mm. And it matters how I talk to people and it matters what 
I do. And so, you know, that's how I'm approaching things. And that draws the, you know, last one of your um, qualities in that you talk about in depth in the book, which is connection as well. Because when you live like that and then you're connecting with people, you know, you're truly connecting with people, Yeah, I think. I think a lot of the time when we talk about connection, we immediately run to the idea of connecting with other people. But I know a lot of the time we try to connect with people, but it just feels off mm. or it doesn't flow. And I think, you know, sometimes we go, oh, well, that's just not my kind of person. And sometimes that's the case. But I think very often it's because we're not really connected with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we're deeply connected with ourselves, then it's amazing that we we seem to find connections with other people so much more easily. Mm-hmm. And we actually feel connected to something bigger, even if we can't name exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like we feel I'm part of something bigger. I don't I can't, I can't explain it. I can't give you the 10 rules of, of what it is, but I just know that I'm here for a bigger reason and I'm part of something bigger and I'm trusting and that I matter. Mm. Talk to me about Edna Walling and connection and why she was the link to connection for you. Well, she was this amazing uh, landscape designer and uh, early conservationist, and she was active in Australia from the 1920s up to her death in the 1970s. And I really mean she was active up to her death because she had a tremendous sense of purpose and mission and was still writing letters to government agencies and to the media until her last breath with her real legacy that she um, believed that, you know, Australia had these beautiful plants, these beautiful trees, and we were destroying it. And we were building houses that weren't suitable for the climate. At her heart, even though she was a landscape designer, she was a builder and she loved building. So she had that great connection to nature and she was not afraid to be seen as odd. Uh, For the 1920s, when she was gardening, she was wearing pants and a men's shirt, which was very unusual for that time. And she just she just didn't care what people thought and eventually they just gave her the affectionate nickname of Trousers. So she was very connected to herself but she had a plan for a village of like-minded people and she started with this beautiful piece of land about an hour out of Melbourne where she built her own home and her own garden and she started building other cottages that fitted in with the landscape and other gardens and she attracted all these amazing women for the time who were basically escaping marriage because they Mm. either wanted to be artists or teachers or professors. They just wanted um, to have that freedom and so she collected around her like-minded people, which I think is a very important part of being emboldened, that we do connect to people that see being courageous, seeing overcoming struggles, not getting caught up in victimhood, but encouraging each other to overcome our Mm. difficulties was tremendously important. So that's really why I chose her for Mm. um, the quality of connection. And I love that connection kind of draws the threads of the rest of your story through as well. I love the structure of the book. I think it's, um, you know, resilience, purpose, passion, connection. Did you leave anything out? Were there other 
things there or someone yeah. else's story that you've got tucked away for book oh, two? Or- look, <laughs> I think what was really interesting, like, because I was giving a talk at Bathurst on Saturday and mm. one of the questions was, how did you choose those four women? Mm. And the truth is, for writers, it's very important to have a publisher that gives us limitations because I probably would have written about 20 women (laughs) and if I didn't have a deadline, would never have finished the book. Mm. So it was my lovely publisher, Kelly Doust, who said, let's stick to four people. And I think I snuck in at number five Mm. with my grandmother. Yes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, I think she actually said, let's do three people. And I go, okay, let's do four. So... She, in a sense, created that structure. And when then we sort of had to, we'll say, well, what are each of these four women going to say about being emboldened? And so I chose them for the qualities that I thought were most important, mm. but they're not the only qualities, for no. sure. We can always come up with more qualities that are important uh, for that as well. So for anyone listening, and I would advise them to go and get the book because it's a wonderful read, how could they go about just this week on their way to the bookshop before they get there of um, thinking about being emboldened in their life? Well, I think the uh, first thing is to just start with that connection to yourself and to just stand back and have a look at your life because all of us have a compass and we know when we're off course. We do. We may not actually allow ourselves to see it, but it's always with that sort of sad feeling mm. in ourselves um, that we're we've, we're off course. Mm. So it's probably you know you actually did me a favour today. I have to tell you because I've been rushing around on my book tour and everything, and then of course we had different times for today's podcast. Yeah. So I had. The first hour that I've had in a long time to sit. just sit in a cafe and we can, not... We can thank the universe for that one. We can thank the universe for constructing that because I just thought how nice it is to just sit and not... And I can't go anywhere and I haven't got a thousand things with me to do, but just to sit. And I think when you sit with yourself and you get comfortable with yourself... That is the best start you can make because your spirit will speak to you. Your spirit will say, you you should, you know, take up this or you need to move this out of your life or you need to do more of this or less of that. If you just give yourself the time to listen to yourself, the answers are actually already there. Hmm. Belinda Alexandra, the book is emboldened and you are emboldened. You are wise So wise and wonderful and I always love talking to you. Thank you for coming in today. And right back to you, Jane. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams. 
tailgating pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.